0: Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming back for another episode of Divulge History. And I am your host, Tom Cunningham. So, uh, today I thought I'd start off by talking about conspiracy theories. Now, conspiracy theory is a term often thrown around today that I think is definitely misunderstood. A conspiracy theory is not the same as a conspiracy. A conspiracy is just a fancy word referring to secret to a, like a secret plan between two or more people um, planning on committing a crime. For example, you and three friends come up with a plan to rob a bank. You and your friends are now conspirators conspiring to rob a bank. A conspiracy theory is an explanation for an event that accuses people or groups of a conspiracy when other explanations have already been established. A good example I think that everyone thinks of when they think of a conspiracy theory is the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963. The established story of the lone shooter Lee Harvey Oswald and the conspiracy theory that the CIA had any involvement. Just because something is labeled as a conspiracy theory doesn't inherently make it untrue. Just because there is an agreed upon consensus doesn't inherently make that true. Oftentimes the word conspiracy is used to stir up emotions and affect your opinion, but just because something true may hurt your feelings, or you may not like it, doesn't mean it stops being true. The Cold War is a time in American history riddled with conspiracy theories. Coincidentally, the term gained mainstream popularity during the beginning of the Cold War in 1950. From what I know and understand, nothing of what I'm about to tell you is a conspiracy theory, although it could be part of some giant conspiracy like, I don't know, the Cold War and the Red Scare were used as justifications for top government officials and associates to, I don't know, profit a whole lot of money and do whatever the hell they wanted without with impunity. But what do I know? Going into this, honestly, I thought it was a conspiracy. It was a government conspiracy. Just checking out Wikipedia's Operation sea, Sa- uh, sea Spray page seems unreal. Reading Operation Sea Spray was a 1950 U.S. Navy secret biological warfare experiment in which Ceratia marcescens and Bacillus globigii bacteria were sprayed all over the San Francisco Bay Area in California in order to determine how vulnerable a city like San Francisco may be to a bi- biological attack. Sounds like a conspiracy to me. The secret history of uh, the biological warfare in the United States is incredible, full of top level connections of White House officials, civilian scientists, pharmaceutical companies, military officials, deans of colleges, CIA agents, and as well as a number of international contacts in Canada, UK, Japan, and Nazi Germany. But for now, I'm going to tell you the story of Edward Neven. And the circumstance surrounding his death had ended uh, the way one might expect, if you believe in conspiracy theories. So uh, it all started in 1976, uh, November 21st, actually. Uh, in the Sunday Newsday Suffolk Addiction, on the first page reported, one day the Army conducted a test. Uh, the paper goes on to report that the U.S. Army conducted a, ger- a germ warfare experiment. On September 26, 1950 in San Francisco, a little more than one month later, one man was dead and five other patients were infected by the same kind of bacterium used in the test. September 26, 1950, and this is being reported on 26 years later, November 21, 1976. Okay, well, the paper would go on to admit or go on to say that the Army admits that the experiment took place, but without any uh, real details, which, if you know anything about the Army, um, it's not really surprising that they're not willing to give away the details of their experiments. Um, Coincidentally, a little bit over a month later, in December 1976, the story made its way to San Francisco, being reported on by the San Francisco Chronicle. While on a train to his San Francisco San Francisco law office, attorney Edward Eddie the III realized that he was now reading a story about his grandfather. And by the end of that day, December twenty second, nineteen seventy six, most of Edward Nevan's sixty-seven to seven uh descendants had already heard about the story. The Newsday article sparked public controversy, ultimately leading to a Senate subcommittee hearing. Uh just being held within a couple months of this news breaking, which is astounding to me, especially for the late 70s like that. Uh, but, I mean, if you know anything about the the mid and the late 70s, it was full of Senate hearings regarding the CIA, their involvement in things, and uh, a bunch of things that were better left secret, I'm sure, to government officials being told to the American people willy-nilly. Uh The subcommittee hearing was on the biological testing involving human subjects by the Department of Defense, which is pretty wild. (laughs) Uh, Now, I'm only bringing up this part quickly to go over parts specific to Ed and Ed Neven. What you get from this subcommittee hearing is two panel sessions, one session consisting of top Army officials, the second with top medical researchers. Both sessions were held uh, to go over the Army's. Submitted official report titled The U.S. Army Activity in the U.S. Biological Warfare Programs, Volume 1 and 2, dated 24 February 1977. The, por- the report, you know, just a normal Army report, it goes over uh, the basic history of the program. Uh, it reports on some of the tests that they conducted. Justifications uh, for conducting a test, or for conducting the tests, general locations of where the tests uh, tests took place, the purpose of the tests, and vaguely what is used in the tests, etc. On Tuesday, March eighth, nineteen seventy-seven, Senator Schweiker, the Pennsylvania sub subcommittee member, posed a question to Army officials, which led to arguably the best exchange in the document. Um, it's a, it's a long exchange, so I'm just going to keep it short and read. Uh, One quick quote from uh, Senator Schweiker, where he goes, I believe, notwithstanding the safety officer and notwithstanding the AMA Journal report about SM, or Saratia Marcissons, you ran these tests up through 1968, some 16 years after the Fort Detrick safety officer had determined he felt that there was a serious problem, and 17 years after the AMA article uh, said that they had caused a death. That is what I have most trouble with. Now, we'll, in later episodes, go, we'll talk about Fort Detrick, specifically in the next episode. um, And we'll talk about that AMA article as well. Uh, But I think that's pretty powerful that Senator Schweiker here calling out the top uh, Army officials of the time in 1977, saying that you ran tests for almost 20 years that you knew were unsafe that's what he's pretty much saying here you ran tests for 17 years after the AMA article said they had caused a death that is what I have most trouble with and reading this whole document it's about 300 pages uh, It's with the army officials that's probably the best exchange uh, but with the the doctors um, if you want I implore you to go read those uh, opening statements by the the four medical officers uh, that they had at the senate briefing they're they're wonderful i think they they do a really good job uh, of tying it all up but you know on may 23rd 1977 followed by a round of questions from senator striker the consensus from the medical researchers was clear uh one there are no known safe simulant agents including saratia marsonson's two the army bypassed the ethical problem of informed consent which i think by now we all uh have a decent decent understanding of what is informed consent and where we all stand on that. Uh, the third consent, uh, the third, um, the third thing, uh, the third thing that they all agreed on was the open air tests conducted by the army are inexcusable. And the fourth thing was uh, biological research needs to be in an open and public system that allows feedback from medical and scientific communities. In other words. Uh, they wanted to get rid of the classification system. Uh, we see it all the time. It says, like, classified, top secret, uh, things like that. They uh, These medical researchers believe that, uh, f- especially for biological warfare and chemical warfare, the, prolifi- the prolification of us even studying them and, and studying the capabilities of these organisms uh, with our vast wealth to do so was – only a great disservice uh, to us in the long term as smaller countries that didn't have the the financial support to do these kind of tests would be able to fall back and like terrorist countries would be able to take this research and, and apply it uh, at one point in time. Biological warfare uh, was known as the poor man's nuke because of the devastation it can cause. But if these other countries weren't able to even study it, Due to lack of money, then why were we just e- expanding on the the research and uh, especially today after the world's worst pandemic and uh, even more recently recently with the Russian invasion of the of Ukraine and and the <laughs> conspiracy theories coming out of there, uh, it, it really goes to show you that this kind of research, this biological warfare material, biological uh, research, whatever you want to call it, uh, is still really relevant and happening today. Uh, so by the end of 1977, Mr. Neven III sued the, US, the United States government in a civil lawsuit claiming that his grandfather, Mr. Neven, died as a result of negligence in the simulated biological warfare experiment in 1950. The U.S. Attorney's Office in San Fran positioned to the court, uh, petitioned to the court to summarily dismiss the claim because the government was immune from lawsuits by citizens under the Federal Torts Claim Act, which is, that's just a wild. Like, how many times has the government gone into... Uh, a tort claim, where a civilian has probably felt, or a citizen of the country has probably felt, extremely wrong by the by by its uh, by their government, just to <laughs> just to get told that you're not even allowed to sue them. Uh, <laughs> uh, the government's request for dimis- uh, dismissal was denied, meaning that Edward Neven's family would have their case heard in open court. But think about how many. Families wouldn't get that same luxury, wouldn't get that luxury, wouldn't get that same right handed to them. Uh, The slow discovery process revealed three key documents in 1979 not revealed before the Neven lawsuit, meaning that they were not revealed during the Senate hearings, which to me tells me that the army lied. But I guess that doesn't really matter or hold up or I'm missing something but other than the fact then that someone would just tell me like oh the government has to keep secrets they're allowed to lie i i don't know if i buy that but okay <laughs> yeah you know it's just not not the same to me um so on march 20th or on may 20th my bad 1981 the u.s district court finally came to a decision uh, three years of this lawsuit uh, between the Nevens v. government v. United States it took three years to finally come back with the decision. Judge Samuel Conti delivered a 36-page ruling where he stated that the Army's decision to test was covered by the discretionary function exa- exemption of the Federal Tort Claim Act. Going on to explain uh, that the judge denied validity to each of the plaintiff's claims. And this is coming from the book Clouds of Secrecy, uh, which I'll, I'll talk to you more about later. But uh, the judge the judge denied validity to each of the plaintiff's claims. He concluded that the Army's decision to test fell within the discretionary function exemption to the Federal Towards Claim Act, as I said. That is, the United States could not be sued in this case uh, because the decision to spray was part of national planning, which made it immune from suit and was not taken merely at the operational level, which would, had a, which would have made it vulnerable to suit. Judge Conti determined that the Army exercised appropriate care in the choice of simulating agents, and he concluded that any injury to the plaintiffs was not the proximate or direct result of the, rele- the release of the Saratia Marcissons by the United States, its agents, or employees. Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it seems pretty on it. Uh, in 1983, after an appeal, a three-dutch decision from the U.S. Courts of Appeals Ninth Circuit ruled that the government was immune from suit under discretionary function exemption on a two-to-one majority. And then later that same year, the Supreme uh, Court refused to hear the Neven family petition uh, to be heard by them. So like if you <laughs> – if you would like a more detailed account of the trial, I highly recommend the book Clouds of Secrecy, the Army's Germ Warfare Test Over Populated Areas by Leonard Cole. Uh, it's a good starting point as any if you're can if you're interested in the, the biological warfare history of the United States. Uh, it it opens your eyes to a lot of things. But I know I went over the case pretty quickly, but let's just go into some of the facts, shall we? Uh, and a quick recap, I guess. At the end of f- September in 1950, Edward Niesman, Edward Neven, a resident of San Francisco, California, underwent a routine operation dealing with his prostate. Around this time, a secret biological weapons test was being conducted in the San Francisco Bay uh, using the bacterium *Serratia marcescens*. We know that over the course of the next several months, 11 people were treated at Stanford University Hospital, all diagnosed with a rare urinary tract infection caused by serratia marcescens*, which resulted in the death of Mr. Ed Neven. Dr. Wheat from Stanford University Hospital published an article in a medical journal about the breakout of serratia marcescens* in 1951. At the trial, we learn of the existence of the Special Report Number 142, a document prepared in 1951. It revealed that using a spray device, aerosolized bacteria, Ceratia marcisans, was dispensed into the air of San Francisco to, and I quote, test the offensive possibilities of attacking a seaport city with biological warfare aerosol to also measure the magnitude of the defensive problem and gain additional data on the behavior of biological warfare aerosol as it's borne downwind. The Army's data shows that nearly all of the 775,000 plus people living in the Bay Area at the time inhaled 5,000 or more particles per minute during the several hours that the cloud remained airborne over the city. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, the San Francisco Bay is known for its fog, and the Army used that (laughs) to release thousands, billions of aerosolized microorganisms (laughs) into the San Francisco Bay Area. Serratia marcescens, at the time, in 1950, was believed to be a relatively harmless organism. By the time uh, the Senate hearing happens, by the time this lawsuit's going on, uh, the Serratia Marcisens simulant was not known to be safe anymore. It was known to cause problems. It was known. Studies have already have been coming out. Uh, it, there was a study... Released in 1976 that took place from, I believe it was like 69 to 74, where 15% of uh, uh, intravenous drug users in San Francisco being studied at the time showed Saratia Marcesin's heart infections. 15% of just people using intravenous drugs in San Francisco out of the four other major cities that that test was being conducted on intravenous drug users only one out of all four cities found where it was fa- only one person was found to have uh, an infection caused by serratia marcescens*. but in San Francisco 15% of the intravenous drug users had an infection caused by Ceratia And so it was known. Then, at least in the 70s, the late 70s, that the potential to uh, cause damage, the potential to harm humans was there. Did they necessarily know that in 1950? Probably not, but <laughs> I mean... You can make an educated guess. (laughs) At the trial, we also learned of an ad hoc committee report. And for all you out there who don't know, ad hoc specifically means a specific purpose. So the specific purpose of this committee uh, were four scientists who presented a two-page secret report in August of 1952 explaining the possible hazards of spraying Saratia marcescens due to the Stanford Hospital cases in San Francisco, saying four government scientists felt that the 11 cases of FSM were potentially caused by the experiment. <laughs> and they knew that in 1952, two years after the experiment. But despite all this, the courts decided in favor of the government, that the government remained protected under the discretionary function exemption of the Federal Torts Claims Act. So, what is the discretionary function? According to the Congressional Research Service, Section 2680A of the Federal Torts Claim Act, and I quote, preserves the federal government's immunity when an employee acts involve the exercise of judgment or choice. So let me just read to you from the legal overview of the Federal Towards Claims Act and this is found on the congress.gov website. Section 2680A, which is commonly called the discretionary the discretionary function exemption, preserves the federal government's immunity when an employee's acts involves the exercise of judgment or choice. Along with being one of the most frequently litigated exceptions to the FTC's waiver of sovereign immunity, the discretionary function exemption is, according to at least one commentator, the broadest and most consequential. For example, the United States has successfully invoked the discretionary function exemption to avoid tort liability in cases involving exposures to radiation, asbestos, Agent Orange, and the Human immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV. And this is just continued from the same source, a legal overview, the Federal Tort Claim Act, found on the Congress website. The discretionary function exemption serves at least two purposes. First, the exemption prevents judicial second-guessing of legislative and administrative decisions grounded in the social, economic, and political policy through the medium of an action in tort. According to one commentator, the Congress that enacted the FTCA viewed second-guessing to be inappropriate because such judgments are more appropriately left to the political branches of our government system. And two, courts which specialize in the resolution of discrete, factual, and legal disputes may not be equipped to make broad policy judgments. Second, the second purpose, uh, the discretionary function exemption is intended to protect the government from liability that would seriously handicap efficient, government operations that just kind of seems backwards to me to protect the government from liability that would seriously handicap efficient government operations how about efficient government operations shouldn't have a substantial amount of liability (laughs) How about that? Stop making government operations efficient by making it unsafe <laughs> and then hiding from the liability because of that. I know that I'm not a lawyer. Please don't take my legal advice. But just reading this as a, as a normal guy, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, from Cornell Law. .edu. Governmental immunity is sometimes also known as sovereign immunity. And we all know examples of governmental immunity. Have you ever watched like CSI or NCIS or one of those shows where some diplomat from another country comes over here and commits a murder or uh, gets in a car accident and kills somebody? Uh, I don't know anything. And then they're like, oh, I have immunity. I have immunity. You can't sue me. Oh, I don't have to talk to you. I have immunity. Yeah, We all know that th- this is like a thing, but we, we don't really see it played out much uh, in, in terms of the FTCA being used to defend the United States government against its citizens. We don't get to see that in the United States that much from – a cultural standpoint we don't see that in tv shows we don't see that in movies we don't often hear about it Uh, but if you look back in history there's a lot of cases and a lot of times where the government has used the ftca act a governmental immunity can be further classified into two major categories which are absolute immunity and qualified immunity absolute immunity means that a government agent or actor cannot be sued for an illegal act, even if said agent or actor performed the action in bad faith or even maliciously. Absolute immunity is usually involved in circumstances that, if challenged, would drastically affect the government's procedures and operations. That's wild! Of course you would have absolute immunity... In circumstances that, if I challenged you, would drastically affect the government's procedures and operations. I'm challenging the government's procedures and operations because they have absolute immunity. That's kind of the point to me. The idea of governmental immunity, again, coming from CornellLaw.edu. The idea of governmental immunity and sovereign immunity is derived from the English common law concept of rex non protest bakari, which simply means that the king can do no wrong. The point of that concept was to protect the sovereign king. We don't have a king for a reason. We can do wrong. The government does do wrong. A good quote I've heard recently. Tyri- tyranny is not a conspiracy theory tyranny is world history and i think it's important for americans not only americans though everybody history Knowing history, understanding history, reading history, even if I'm wrong in everything I'm saying right now, I know I'm not in most of the things I'm saying, but I could totally be wrong in this, the idea of understanding this law stuff. It just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem right to me. The United States has successfully invoked a discretionary function exemption to avoid tort liability. In cases involving exposures to radiation, asbestos, Agent Orange, and the Human Immunodeficiency Virus, or HIV. Listen to what I say. Avoid tort liability. To avoid liability. (coughs) Excuse me. Using this clause to me is hiding. Using this clause to me Is accepting accountability, but pushing off the liability to avoid tort liability. Saying like, yeah, there is evidence that we did have or did play some a little major part in whatever. Ancient Orange. Which is something we're going to discuss a lot about as I continue on uh, talking about biological warfare back in the day. In the in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Ancient Orange was used uh, as an anti-foliage plant biological warfare, if you will. Uh, just to turn out and... Apparently cause a lot of bad things later for people who inhaled it. And we definitely used Agent Orange. Everybody knows that. How many times can they avoid liability by not being held accountable? What else have they avoided liability from? I know one thing that's been recently talked about is the burn pits in Afghanistan. Causing all those cancers president biden's son died of brain cancer and he worked at a burn pit that i'm sure i'm sh- i'm positive that if there's were to go to court they would fall under the ftca or fcta section 2680a would probably protect them too for that which they can <laughs> I mean, you can I guess say the United States has successfully invoked the discretionary function exemption to avoid tort liabilities in casing of exposures to radiation, especially Agent Orange, the human the HIV virus and to Seratia Marcusins. But, like I said, this is one of the first stories I researched, and man am I hooked. Join me next time as I go over the origins of the US biological warfare program. From its inception up to about uh, 1949. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys have a great day.